in John 12, 20-36, this section that I just read. Jesus is responding publicly <coughs> Jesus is responding publicly to the request of some Greeks to meet and converse with him. We saw a couple weeks ago that this public response doesn't mean that Jesus ignored the private request. He very well might have sent a message back to these guys saying, you know, meet me at such and such a place later. He may well have met with them. We don't, we just don't know. But John just hasn't bothered to record his private response. But Jesus' public response in John 12, 20 to 36 is responding to the situation that is presented to him. Greeks, that is Gentiles, have begun to show an interest in him. And Jesus, public response here, involves teaching the crowds that he is going to be like a grain of wheat, which gives itself up to bear much fruit. And this, of course, refers to his death by Roman crucifixion, in which he will be lifted up from the earth, as verses 33 and 34 tell us. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. His death will be the means of bringing all kinds of people, that's the sense of it, both Jews and Gentiles, to himself. And therefore, in that manner, in that way, his death will be fruitful. And so the metaphor that is used is a grain of wheat, Dying and bringing forth much fruit. What it represents is Jesus being lifted up on the cross as the Savior of both Jews and Gentiles, and many Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in Him and being saved. And so His death will be fruitful like a grain of wheat. That's what's happening in this section. Now, Jesus knew ahead of time that this was going to be the nature and the outcome of his death. Jesus knew that he was going to give himself up in order that Jews would be saved, in order that Gentiles would be saved, and not just a few of them, but that it would culminate in a multitude so large, gathered around the throne in eternity to come, that no one will be able to count it. A a multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation A myriad so large that it is beyond number. Jesus knows that his death is going to bring about this end. This is what he is teaching the crowds. Yes, the time has come for me to receive Gentiles. These these people are asking that they might have an audience with me. And yes, the hour has come in which I will receive Gentiles to myself. Jesus was well aware that this was going to be the nature and the outcome of his death. Did his death just become just a formality to him? That just a mere hoop that he had to jump through? Some red tape that he had to address to bring about this intended end? Like we might just have to fill out a form, complete some kind of sheet, some kind of document in order to bring about an intended end. And yes, if filling out the form is not pleasant, but it's you know, we, we put up with it for the greater good. Maybe it's an adoption form to bring a little one into a family. Maybe it's a, a form that you have to fill out at the bank to release funds 
that you're borrowing your mortgage so that you could move into your new home. And so it's a, it's a relatively little thing. It's a little inconvenience that you have to go through to fill out this form for whatever the greater good might be. Was Jesus' death just some, like, it's going to be so fruitful that this death, yes, I do have to die, but it's just this little thing. It's just a little bit of red tape, a little hoop that i got to jump through in order to release the fruitfulness. Was this the case? Knowing full well that he would be resurrected and that after his soul makes an offering for sin, as Isaiah 53 says, that he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Did this make his death no big deal to him? Just a little thing that he had to go through. No. He says at the beginning of verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. This is the same word that Matthew uses to describe Jesus' state of being. Less than a week later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of his arrest, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Matthew tells us in chapter 26 and verse 37. We often use in our modern way of speaking, troubled is kind of a light word. If, if you said, you know, how are you doing, John? And I said, well, I'm a little troubled about something. Or I'm troubled about something. Even if I omitted the word little, I'm troubled about something. You would understand I'm not having a pleasant day, that there's something bothering me, but it doesn't sound like a really grievous Thing, but considering that Jesus sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane, and the scripture says he was troubled. We understand something of the anguish and seriousness, the gravity of this word when Jesus says here in John chapter 12 and verse 27, now is my soul troubled. He was really, really distraught about it. Thinking about his upcoming death. Jesus was no coward. He could face natural death as bravely as any soldier, as bravely as any martyr, as bravely as any hero. But it was the additional burden of drinking the cup that his father gave him to drink, which caused this distress that he articulates here in John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. If it is possible, Jesus prays when he is distressed and troubled again in Matthew 26. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That was what was foremost on his mind when he thought of his death. The cup that his father had given him to drink. And that was what was causing his soul to be troubled. It wasn't just... The fact that his body was going to die. Countless followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. Have died with their heads held high. With courage. With a noble spirit. Without sweating great drops of blood. Was Jesus just so much weaker than his followers? That here he is sweating drops of blood. Because his body is about to be killed? No. It was that he had to drink a cup. That caused him such difficulty. For it was this cup 
pardon me, for this cup was the cup of God's wrath that Jesus had to drink while hanging there upon the cross, lifted up from the earth. I preached a sermon a while ago on Matthew 26, 39, where Jesus prays, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In which I demonstrated to you that there is a strong Old Testament precedent for understanding the imagery of the cup to refer to one's experience of God's punishment. Even explicitly God's wrath. For the sake of time, I won't cite again now all of the scriptures that I piled up to demonstrate this conclusion in that other sermon. But suffice it to say that the Old Testament speaks overwhelmingly when it uses this imagery of the cup in such a way that the cup refers to God's wrath, God's punishment being the lot in life or the portion of the wicked which God will make them drink in due time. It would be most natural then, even just on the basis of this recurring motif throughout Scripture, the the cup that we've seen over and over in the Old Testament. It would be most natural then, just on the basis of this recurring motif, to suspect that when Jesus prays in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. When he shows us that there is this cup that he does not want to drink, It is quite probable, even just on the basis of this recurring motif in Scripture, to think that he is referring to the cup of God's wrath. And this is confirmed beyond any reasonable doubt when we consider theologically what is happening as Jesus goes to the cross. After all, who is it in the Old Testament that drinks the cup of God's wrath? It's the wicked. It's the evildoers who we are told over and over again in the Old Testament will have to drink the cup from God's hand. And what is Jesus doing at the cross? Substituting himself for the wicked. Here's a sampling of the Apostle Paul's writing on this subject. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Romans 8.32 He did not give up Pardon me, He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. Here's a sampling of the Apostle Peter's writing on this subject. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. First Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the Apostle John, 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation for our sins, which means, propitiation means that he bore the wrath of God in our place, which diverted the wrath of God then from us. Towards him. And here's that word propitiation again in 1 John 4 and verse 10. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You understand, Jesus drank the cup that the wicked deserved to drink 
for them, for us. This is why Jesus' soul was troubled. Because he knew that not only were they going to put some nails in his hands, which hurts, not only would he be asphyxiated as his arms lost their ability to pull himself up, not only would he be enduring the most brutal form of execution that apparently the human race has ever known, Roman crucifixion, not only would that be happening to him, which would cause some consternation, but as I've said, many have faced it with a brave face. Not only would that be happening, but he would drink the cup of God's wrath. The sky would be darkened, and he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not merely a transaction between the empire and a Jewish man from Galilee. It was a transaction between God Himself and the Lamb of God appointed to bear the sin of the world. This is why Jesus says, The hour has come. Now is my soul troubled. But what does he then say? Father, save me from this hour? No. He eliminates that option by acknowledging. Look at verse 27. For this purpose I have come to this hour. So he prays instead. Father, glorify your name. Though I must drink this cup. Though my soul is troubled. What am I going to do? Say, Father, save me from this hour? No. Father, glorify your name. This submission to the Father's will is very much in line with what he says in Matthew 26, when again in Gethsemane, faced with the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus submits to the Father's will and prays. Glorify your name. The Father responds from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The remainder of our message this morning is broken into two points. What this interchange meant with respect to Jesus himself, and the situation at hand, and what this interchange means for us. Let's begin with what this interchange, this dialogue between Jesus and his father meant with respect to himself and the situation at hand. Some commentators look for a specific incident that the father could be referring to when he says, I have glorified my name. Perhaps Jesus' baptism or the transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared to speak with him up on top of the mountain. When both times God's voice was heard audibly from heaven. However, it is grammatically unnecessary, Hendrickson says, and it is theologically unnecessary, many other commentators agree, to try to find a specific incident that God is referring to when he says, I have glorified my name. 
We don't need to find, well, what, what specific incident is God thinking of when he says, I have glorified my name? That's unnecessary. We don't have to find a specific incident. Rather, the sense of it is, as D.A. Carson says, the Heavenly Father has been glorifying his name throughout the ministry of his dear son. And the phrase, and I will glorify it again, simply means that the Heavenly Father who has been glorifying His name throughout the ministry of His dear Son can be counted on to continue that glorification at the climactic hour. In other words, God isn't going to stop glorifying Himself as the Son drinks the cup of wrath. As Jesus suffers... On the cross, the program of history in which God seeks to glorify Himself will not be paused. God, who has been glorifying Himself, will continue to glorify Himself as Jesus suffers on the cross. In fact, we know that it is through Jesus' suffering on the cross that God is most glorified. If I asked you what story in the Bible most clearly displays the glory of God, I hope you would tell me the old, old story of Jesus and His love, which culminates with Him laying down His life for His sheep. I hope you would speak to me of the cross. We read Ephesians 1, 3-14 as our call to worship today. And what is the refrain repeated three times in that section? To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. All of redemption. The Father predestining us for adoption as sons. The Spirit sealing us. And... The redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins, is to the praise of God's glory. Was the crucifixion the only moment in history when God's program of glorifying Himself, that which He is always doing, was paused? No. The crucifixion was when God's program of glorifying Himself reached its zenith and its apex. God has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ to the praise of His glory. Jesus Himself tells us, the Scriptures testify of Me. After His resurrection, He unfolds to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The Bible is a Christ-centered book. And the theological center of Christ's own life is his death. And its corollary, the resurrection. John, for example, spends the last nine chapters of his gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. Or is it ten chapters? I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but it's about half the book. Which should indicate the 
importance with which John attaches to what happens at the end. And this is the focus of the gospel writers. There is a disproportionate amount of ink spilled on the last week and the last few days. The last few hours of Jesus' life. Because the gospel writers understood that the theological center of Jesus' ministry is his death. And its corollary, the resurrection. Therefore, as Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, God's plan and purpose to act for His own glory is not paused, but rather revealed most clearly, displayed and accomplished. We now forever celebrate the God who acted many times and many ways in scriptures for his own glory. He parted the Red Sea after bringing the Israelites out of Egypt by his mighty right hand. He later brought his people again back out of exile from Babylon. He's revealed himself to us as he who is enthroned above the cherubim, who we can't even understand. He gives us These apocalyptic images in Ezekiel, the wheel within the wheel, showing us something of just His otherness and His grandeur. And so we celebrate God's glory because of the many things that the Scriptures reveal to us about who He is. And because of the many ways that He has dealt with us in history. But we celebrate God chiefly now from our vantage point in history. As he who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see God wasn't pausing his program of self-glorification at the cross. God was bringing it to its highest point. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. This is what this interchange meant with respect to Jesus and the immediate situation at hand. Again, as Carson said, the Heavenly Father who has been glorifying his name throughout the ministry of his dear son can be counted on to continue that glorification at the climactic hour. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Let's consider what this interchange means for us. This little dialogue between Jesus and his Father. Of course, we are not Christ's or Messiah's. We are not saviors of the world who give ourselves up to atone for the sins of the world. We do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of others, or even on our own behalf, because Jesus has already drank it for us. Therefore, thankfully, we'll never have to face the degree of suffering that Jesus did. But we are to be like grains of wheat, as our Master is which give ourselves up to bear much fruit. Listen to my sermon from last week, or just go look at 
verses 24 to 26 of John chapter 12 to substantiate that idea. Therefore, we are going to come to situations which trouble us as Jesus' impending suffering troubled him. What are we to do in those situations? Pray, Father, save me from this hour? No. As I said last week, just as Jesus was appointed to die as a grain of wheat, God in His sovereign plan has ordained decreed, planned, purposed that you, Christian, will give yourselves up in a hundred little ways throughout the course of your Christian life. And in some big ways too. In order that you may bear fruit. God's plan is that we will be like grains of wheat Just like it was his plan that Jesus would be a grain of wheat. So each time you come to those difficult hours, tell yourself, as Jesus did, for a purpose I have come to this hour. This is part of God's plan for me. And here is the primary application of today's message. Embrace your God-ordained suffering. But not only embrace it, but seek God's glory above all in it and through it. As Jesus did. Notice, not only that Jesus did not say, Father, save me from this hour. But neither did he merely say, help me endure. Jesus' overarching focus was not on himself. But rather on God and God's glory. Make this the prayer of your heart then. Also, as Jesus did. Above all. Father, glorify your name. Don't merely steal yourself to endure. Don't merely try to keep a stiff upper lip. Don't merely try to dig deeper. Don't even merely ask God for strength to endure. Yes, your suffering calls for fortitude and endurance. Yes, you should look to God for strength to endure. But your suffering does not merely call for fortitude and endurance. Your suffering also calls for the abandonment of self-importance. Even your life, Christian. Even your life is not ultimately about you. Jesus embraced the God-ordained mandate of his life. 
which was certainly not to be comfortable, nor was it even to survive. We could, we could state it even more strongly than that. Jesus had a mandate to not survive. Jesus, in the midst of his mandate to not survive, seeks above all not to avoid that mandate or to escape that mandate, but to glorify God in that mandate. In this way, he is the epitome of the servant that we should all be in the face of suffering. Not my will, but yours. Glorify your name. It's as if Jesus had said, I prefer not to suffer. If it's possible, let this cup pass through. But if it is your plan and purpose that I suffer, so be it. Just this one thing I ask. Glorify your name. What a good thing it would be if this was the prayer of our hearts also. Father, glorify your name. If it were our prayer, it would change two things. One, our aim in the midst of suffering. And two, our motivation in the face of suffering. Our aim with respect to suffering would no longer be simply to avoid it or to escape it. We may well even choose suffering in the first place. If it is really our heart's desire, Father, glorify your name. For example, the evangelist who goes into a dangerous situation knowing full well the risks and yet doing it anyway. This is somebody whose ultimate prayer is not save me from this hour, but rather glorify your name. And so he chooses suffering. Or the spouse who stays in a difficult marriage rather than trying to escape it through divorce as so many do. This is someone whose prayer is not, Father, save me from this hour, but is rather glorify your name. And so instead of trying to escape, they choose to stay. When it is our prayer, above all, it doesn't mean we have to like suffering. It's okay to pray. If it's possible, let this cup pass from you. But when it is our prayer, overall, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine, one thing I ask above all, glorify your name. Then our aim is no longer mainly to avoid suffering in the first place. Or to escape it as soon as possible. But to do in whatever situations we find ourselves what makes most for God's glory. Whether that's the easier path or the harder path. And our motivation in the face of suffering will increase. Not only will our aims change in the face of suffering. When it becomes our prayer, glorify your name. But our motivation increases in the midst of suffering. One major discouragement when suffering is when it feels hopeless and pointless. If your main aim is to escape suffering, 
but you feel like you will never be able to escape it. Well, that's discouraging. If your paradigm is, I want to suffer as little as possible, and then something happens which locks you into suffering for the rest of your life, like somebody that you deeply love dies, you know that they're not coming back. Or you develop a chronic condition, a chronic illness. It's very discouraging. If the only paradigm you have is, I've got to get out of suffering. I've got to avoid it or escape it. Then when you get locked in, it's very discouraging and depressing. It's likewise discouraging when you feel like your suffering is pointless. Most of us would be willing to embrace at least a certain amount of suffering. Say, for example, to help someone we love. But when it feels like there is no purpose to it at all, it's very discouraging. Contrast the following two situations. First, the suffering of a young unwed mother choosing to embrace the difficulty of single parenting rather than to have an abortion. For the sake of her baby, she chooses to embrace the suffering of single parenting. For the sake of someone that she loves. There is a purpose to it. Now the second situation, chronic pain. Hmm. It's a little harder to see what is the point. What is the purpose? For what? It's not real clear. When the, when the young mom is struggling, and it is a struggle, and she doesn't have the help of a man who really should be there, but isn't, and here she is struggling to raise her baby, it's tough. But she tells herself, this is for a purpose. It's for this little one. It's for my kid. But someone's struggling with chronic pain and say, well, what's it for? For what? Who profits by my pain? Not me. Not anyone else. It just hurts. It feels pointless. See, in that sense, it's harder than the other. We would say the first situation, it's worth it because it's for something. We can embrace it. But the second, who would want to embrace that? Who would say that it's worth it? When we prioritize God's glory above all, even above avoiding or escaping suffering, it can increase our motivation in suffering because it can give purpose to our suffering. Take for example... Even something like the chronic pain that I just mentioned, which often doesn't feel like it's for something. When we pray, glorify your name through my chronic pain, we give it purpose. Or more accurately, we recognize the purpose for which God has ordained it. We then move from the mindset of, God, please get me out of this, to a mindset of, God, 
please use this. And that can help motivate us to think and speak and act in the midst of our suffering in hopeful, encouraged ways instead of in discouraged and despairing ways. So Jesus embraced his God-ordained suffering, relegating himself to the periphery and making God's glory his central concern. You see, it wasn't for Jesus merely about enduring, let alone avoiding or escaping. For Jesus, it wasn't even merely about enduring what God had ordained for him. But it was about, yes, enduring, but even on top of that, glorifying God through it. Making God's glory his central concern. We should do likewise. Saint, whatever you're going through, and I couldn't possibly name all the different kinds of suffering. Some perhaps I'm aware of, but I wouldn't say it from the pulpit. Some I'm not aware of. But you know the suffering in your life. I'm not making light of it. But I am saying that you should make it the prayer of your heart. Above all, Father, glorify your name. Feel free to pray as Jesus did, if it is possible, let this thing pass from me. But adopt that same posture of Jesus toward the God-ordained suffering in his life. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And just one thing I ask. Glorify your name. When this becomes our focus, it changes. Not only are we being obedient, first of all, to what is plainly taught in this section of John's gospel. But it changes our aim and it changes our motivation in the face of suffering. As this paradigm shift really gets into your heart, you'll go from being a God, get me out of this person, to being a God, use this person. From being a despairing discouraged saint to being a hopeful and encouraged saint and then consequently and hearkening back to last week's message you'll become a fruitful saint encouraging and edifying your brothers and sisters in Christ as you lay down Yourself, like a grain of wheat, to bear much fruit.